Hello and welcome to the Field Musicast again uh, with me, Peter. And, and me, David. From Field Music. Um, what we're going to do today, David? We are going to continue our theme of taking one of the songs from our new album, Flat White Moon, and you are going to tell me how you wrote the song, Not When You're In Love.
as you can probably tell, that started out as a piano riff, which I'd had for ages, I think. I can't remember how many, it's probably sort of two or three, maybe even four years that I had that um, on my laptop as a MIDI file. It would have to be a MIDI file because it's almost unplayable. It's impossible for me to play, so I, I couldn't remember how to play it or, uh, anyway, on the actual recording, it's... Is there I, a certain it, amount of studio trickery? There's a, yeah. <laughs> there's, I played the left hand with two hands and the right hand with two hands. Um, anyway, that's the magic of MIDI, isn't it? And I suppose thinking about that sort of piano thing, which I, you know, I end up doing quite a lot because I try and write on piano every now and again to get me out of, you know, blues rock. The same old things we would do on guitar, um, yeah. But while sort of thinking about it, it's, it's I think on piano, the um, our influence of, um, shall we talk about jazz? I think it's time to talk about jazz. Let's Peter. talk about jazz. Um, the, the sort of the jazz influence comes in. Um, I mean, I would never profess to be uh, absolutely not actually a jazz musician anyone who you know I can't improvise in that same way but it's something that I understand a bit and really respect and it's also a whole field of music which still feels like quite new to me even though I think we've listened to I think we got into jazz maybe 20 years ago because of maybe it's because of Barry Hyde's dad um Barry from the Future Heads, I think. I'll yeah, there's a, there was a combination of things. I mean, I def, I, I, thinking back to 20 years ago, we had uh, 1,001 albums you must hear. Um, and, you know, some of the, you know, the big records of jazz were in there. And out of curiosity, I think I probably got Kind of Blue by Miles Davis before we were introduced some of, to some of the more esoteric stuff. This. Yeah, and I wasn't into. I wasn't into. I found it quite difficult to kind of get into. And I think I got into jazz because of Barry and his dad showed me uh, meditations by the sort of mid sixties John Coltrane quartet, and it was. It's a very extreme record. Pretty fierce, and it was. It was kind of like to me, chaotic, uh, sort of acoustic heavy metal. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, it is. It's it's heavy and and very conceptual. Where it was sort of there was basically a band in the right speaker and a band in the left speaker, and they were kind of it seemed to me just playing whatever they wanted. But it seemed like energy music, and I think that kind of broke down the kind of the jazz barrier to me. Where I was like, okay, I think I get, I think I get where the where the idea is coming from. You know, order through um, spont- spontaneity, almost. Um, yeah, and then, and then, so we we've been on various kind of like journeys into jazz, journeys records. into jazz, journeys into jazz, um, and there's been Next album, yeah. long periods where I found myself like struggling to listen to pop music and could like could only could only listen to jazz. I think around the time that actually our first couple of albums came out, where it was all like quite difficult. Life was quite difficult and being in a band was quite difficult. Mm. That I 
was kind of only listening to Duke Ellington and Miles Davis and John Coltrane and Thelonious Monk. Monk. Psych. Psych. Um, so even though... Watch us wreck the mic. I feel like all of the the, the knowledge that I had garnered then and built up so that I could, you know, churn out pointless facts about things, you know, like tell you who played bass on various Duke Ellington records through the years. That's gone. My brain doesn't work like that anymore. But the influence of what the music does, I think, is there. Well, I think I think it opened us to like certain harmonic sensibilities where it's like, okay, well, that chord is, you can just use that chord. And then you can put another one on top, and it and it's acceptable. So I think for me, it was how can you basically utilize the the harmonic language, and sometimes the kind of the um, textural language to make um, songs, not and not like swing songs as well, because I think that's the thing that we didn't do, you know, especially around the, the first second album. There's no. There's, there's not really there's not really that much swinginess um, and I think that was something that we kind of maybe f- I mean there is there is a bit you know you think of like actually some of the some of the songs on um, Tons of Town especially has yeah, I mean, have even quite like elastic House is Not a Home and Sit Tight both have a kind of like lope to them which isn't straight um, without yeah. being it doesn't come it doesn't come from jazz I don't think but one of the um, so obviously that was when we were in our twenties. Yes, um, when we discovered this like new field of music. But obviously, um, ideas and the sounds of it have permeated our lives for a long time before that. Um, and one of the pieces of music I had been thinking about. After we wrote, after this song had been written and recorded, and you got me this album for Christmas, which was the um, is it what's it called again? The Charlie Brown's Christmas. Charlie Brown's Christmas. Charlie Brown's Christmas by the Vince Guaraldi Trio. By the Vince Guaraldi Trio, and obviously when I stuck this record on, I immediately recognised it, and especially this the track Linus and Lucy. So, which is a totally brilliant piece of music. Oh, it's just superb. so beautiful. Kind of simple. I mean, if you can really play, or like, I've tried to play it and I can't play it. Obviously, direct. It like channels to you straight away. Yeah. It makes you feel it straight away, and not just the nostalgia for Charlie Brown. It's like there's something. It in communicates it. something sort of straight away. Yet it has that. Um, sophistication of a just a superb jazz band playing a, a superb it's just it's just perfect music for me that it's just perfect music I, I, I love it I get excited and actually listening to that again um haven't listened to that record it's, it's just opened up another I'm like yeah I need to try and do more stuff like that I mean I have to get my chops sorted out on the piano a bit or I have to you know see what Liz is doing or give Andy Moore a ring or something like that. But um, well, compositionally, but it, that is just... 
Yeah, I mean, it, it like it. It feels like it, just a slight sidestep from this this long period we had, where quite often what I think of as like a McCoy Tyner who was in the John Coltrane Quartet mm-hmm. approach to like spreading out across the piano and like um, quite ambiguous harmony. So there's not a lot of like. If, if I think about like the kind of like the Burt Bacharach style of classic jazz influenced songwriting, there's a lot of extended chords, but each of the chords tells you everything about what the music should be doing. That you know, like a, a major seventh there and a minor seventh there and a plus thirteen or whatever it is. But like what? Yeah. Whereas if the McCoy Tyner style, which came from that like modal jazz period it's very um, very ambiguous and the, you it's such it's difficult to describe and because i can't play it i can't i can't do it no but you can hear you can imagine it and you can hear it but I, I know like for us things like um or for me on the first album 17 um was that that idea of very ambiguous harmony which you could spread out, like, in my case, it's usually, like, all the white notes on the keyboard yeah. because that's all I can do. Um, it's not leading you through a harmonic journey. It's, like, laying out a floor of harmony you can play on. <laughs> that's a stupid way to put it, but that's how I feel about it. And actually, mm-hmm. that, that, that Vince Guaraldi track has more of that style of, like, here's your here's your harmonic playground and you can do tunes within it rather than a complicated set of chords which you have to follow exactly right okay i see, I see do you know what i mean yeah yeah so it's like yeah apart from outside of the sort of following the chords the the bebop style yeah yeah where there's a there's a there's a set of a chord progression you have to the melody has to follow it because otherwise it would, wouldn't make sense this the modal way of doing it is here are the notes you're allowed to use. Knock yourself out. <laughs> Not quite. That shows, yeah, shows yeah. my. I, mean, I don't know. I don't know because I mean, you know, I wouldn't profess to know. I, th- I think I'm using every aspect of my like GCSE music knowledge there. <laughs> really going for it. I mean, I suppose jazz for me is something I deeply enjoy and really respect, but I am definitely outside of it, and I'll try and like. Quite often in my mind, I will say to myself, I'll think, what is just the best music that's ever made? <laughs> and I think it's very difficult to look beyond that. For, for me, sometimes, you know, you, in the, in this even includes classical music. I think it's very hard for me to look sometimes beyond the years like 1950 to 1965 in in jazz as like not being the greatest music ever made. It just sometimes just seems to me, it's just like, you know, what was that guy in the in the jazz documentary like? Just it shows the the capaciousness of the human mind. <laughs> oh, I can't remember his name. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> you know, you and that actually, and that leads on to um, another big influence on this record for me. Um, someone else who kind of came from sort of pop rock folk music, I suppose. And sort of gradually sort of dipped into 
into into jazz with sort of great success in my mind, and that would be um, Joni Mitchell, and the album that that I was really taken by was Caught and Spark. So when you first showed me the song, not when you're in love, like the Joni Mitchell influence in like the shape of the lyrics and the vocal melody was the most clear thing to me from that. And I I haven't started my Joni Mitchell journey yet. So <laughs> why sh- why should I? Why? Well, why not? <laughs> um I just I just think she's um I just think she's really brilliant. And brilliant in the sense of it just everything about um, this album in, in particular just kind of really shines out as um, masterful, experimental, and um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's just, it's like nothing else, you know. It's like, like nothing else. Do you well, know the way I- the way she sings, the way she phrases her singing, the things she talks about, um, and I think that was one of the influences. And I think blue is a big influence on this as well. Um, the way she talks about love, the idea of think thinking about what 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 it means, and um, how to deal with it. I mean, it's it's quite interesting, you know, like because she she was in a relationship with Graham Nash for a while, wasn't she? Um, the style of like a Graham Nash, Crosby, Stills and Nash love song <laughs> it's very different from the style of a a Joni Mitchell well it's, it's, they're not love songs they're songs about how people feel about each other um how people observe each other what's going through people's minds as they do these acts and what that means I mean it, it's like that song Caught and Spark um well it's it, dazzling it is it is it is dazzling and that that's what I mean you know when I say brilliant and it is it is dazzling in that in that way and I think it 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 wanders around, you know. It really wanders, and her voice really wanders, and it's almost like that wandering voice is like her, like wondering as well, you know. It's like it's like it's a search, and um, and I think that is what I was trying to do. To be honest, I don't even know whether I'd heard "Caught and Spark" before I'd written the song. Um, or I'd written the, the lyrics, but I think in terms of how it was going to be performed, I think it was a big a big deal. Um, actually, I saw the whole album played live by a band at the Oran Moor in Glasgow, which is on the the corner, corner of, of Byers Road, Road and Great, Great Western, Western Road. Road. Yeah, and um, good venue. So, and in the in the band was um, Tom Gibbs playing piano. Rachel Lightbody singing, Sarah on flute, um, Gordon from Roddy Hart's band on guitar, and a whole host of like really great musicians playing this. And to be honest, I don't normally like the thing of let ba- a band's going to play the whole whole album. Normally, it's it's impressive, but I'd rather be listening to the album. But this really like faced with it, played by essentially a kind of like. A, a jazz group, a jazz yeah, rock group. Tom Tom Gibbs is certainly 
Yeah, yeah, from, and from Rachel jazz as, as well. And and um, yeah, I was just I was totally blown away by it. And then um, obviously listened to the record more and more after that, and really um, really got a lot out of it. And I think the other thing um, now I'm, I'm thinking about it. The other thing that Joni Mitchell does great is describes or sets scenes. And I think that was the other thing I wanted to do with this song was kind of talk about the idea of being in love or not being in love um, through a bunch of scenes. Um, so like each, my thought was like, well, each verse is going to be like a scene. Um, and somebody else I realized who, do, who does this and you bought me this record as well. I'm such a good brother. You are. You bought me some crap as well, by the way. You really have. But a couple of good ones. Um, which is, is the first Dire Straits album. And immediately, first song, bam, the scene is set. You know, you're on the quayside in Newcastle. Sweet surrender, you know, like, Wow. Um, so that's uh, down to the waterline. What that that makes us think is like what you, what someone tries to do with poetry, which is in a concise way evoke something. You know, how much can you evoke in a relatively small amount of words? And that's something I suppose which Mark Knopfler, at his best as a writer, does. And the, you know, Johnny Mitchell is kind of kind of the master like a couple of lines can tell you about the place and the people and the relationship between the people yeah and they're also i think they're really careful with their sort of metaphors and similes it's like it's not too poetic it's still pretty straight like you can understand the, the picture straight away it creates an image you don't have to kind of create it yourself it's a, it's an immediate image and it's um, it's cinematic, mm. you know. You know, people talk about like cinematic music, and really, what they talk about quite often is just like, well, it's got strings. It's got on strings it. on it. <laughs> and it's like, reverb. Well, how's that? How's that cin- cinematic? It's just got strings. Bit, on it, you know, bit of timpani. But I think that's, that's for me. That's like the wrong way of like seeing something as cinematic. I see Dire Straits. I can't believe I'm even saying this. You know, but it's like, <laughs> you know, the first you know, two or three Dire Straits albums and, and the way Johnny Mitchell does it, it's it's like a collection of images, which is like, in my mind, the true idea of what cinema is. Yeah. Cam- the, the camera angles, which show you a certain amount. Yeah, it's there. You don't, maybe what's off screen. And it's and, not necessarily like, like a metaphor-like or a simile-like, <laughs> like a simile. But it's there to be, it's an image there to be understood, to say something about the world or about people. And I think that that's what I was trying to do with this. And that's kind of a new thing for me to attempt. So we'll see whether anyone thinks it's successful or not. But I, you know, I enjoyed, I enjoyed doing it. Yeah, you have to say that. You can't say it. Peter, you know that song that you think is the best thing you've ever written? It's not. <laughs>
It really isn't. Um, but I suppose the other thing I wanted to do with it, um, and this comes from the influence of people like Prefab Sprout and Scritti Politti, was not just talk about the idea of love within scenes, you know, things happening in a, in a, in a scene and that talking about whether you're in love or not um, and how, how you feel about the idea of love, but also like the meaning of the word love and the meaning of the, like the phrase in love, in love, you're in love, you know, and I, I always liked that, um, the way that um, Green Guard side and Paddy McAloon like really get into the forensics and like the semantics of the meaning of these words. I mean, obviously, like there's the, the famous example is the word girl. And it's just like you write a song about about the word girl. <laughs> I, I, that's how I've read it. Am I, am I right in thinking that you've written a song about about the word girl? You know, it's like this idea of... Um, but that's what they, they, they're they smart guys, you know, and they kind of like, they bring in semiotics into like pop music, you know, well, linguistics I, and... I think if you use language without you know, interrogating it a little bit, then you you can fall back on cliches. And if you're really interested in uh, what people mean when they say things and the difference And there's no between... bigger cliche than saying, I'm in love. Or even the word lo- like... But, it, but it means something to people. It does mean something to but people. But it means different things to different people and the gap between those things and the gap between how easily people use it is like kind of <laughs> pretty pretty big human problem. And well and this is it and that's what this song's about. It's cuz it's like it's a, even a gap in my own mind. It's like I don't have a a fixed idea about what any of that means. So it's like you question your own memory of thinking you were in love or thinking that you weren't or thinking that you had an idea of it or that you didn't have an idea of it. And this that is like for me is a the tricky part, and I, you know, I didn't want to write a song like, for you know, like there's loads of songs like saying like, "What is love?" I mean, Hadaway. <laughs> um, those are the ones. Um, come on, Dave. Foreigner did one. I want to know what love is. And did he find out what it was? I think she was going to show him. Oh. <laughs> he wanted her to show him. Hmm. <laughs> Sounds a bit suspicious. <laughs> Could you show me what love is, please? <laughs> In great detail, if if at all possible. <laughs> no, no, I'm not saying tell me. I mean, show me. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm going anyway. too far. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there's there's other examples of that. So it was like in my mind, it was like, what if, what if it was like you you, you wrote something about not when what you're, is not what it, what is love? <laughs> what is love? Um, or what is what is not what is not, or what 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 would you do if you were in love, or what would you do if you were not in love? You know, it's like 
I wanted to try and play with the... Well, do you know what? I didn't even want to do that. I just felt that's what I was doing. You know, that's kind of... I needed to do it in my own own mind, so I may as well like write a song about it. Um, but anyway, yeah, talking about Scritty Politti, I'd like to go slightly off-piste. Because when I first heard Cupid and Psyche, the album from... The Masterpiece album. I think Elton John might have even called it the best album of the 80s. Or the best electronic album of the 80s. It's, I mean, it, it's... Whichever me, way it's, it's high it's, praise, there's a lot of electronic albums in the 80s. Exactly. I mean, it's, 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 for me, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a masterwork. I really, really like it. But when I first heard it, there was a song on there called Lover to Fall, which really reminded me of something else. So... Tell me, what did it remind you of? Well, what did it remind you of? I well, I, I, you see, I, I, <laughs> I don't want to say because my my mem- you have shown me over the last couple of days that my memory of this is not entirely correct because I, I, I seem to be accepting of in um, of not not the right mix or not the right version. So I, I've clearly not fully absorbed this into my mind. I don't think you can get the correct version of the... It's kind of the early 90s Grinch Hill theme tune. Ba-ba-da-ba-ba. Yeah. <laughs> and for, for me, there's an obvious link between Love to Fall and the Grinch Hill theme I'm tune. sure I've read that the person who composed the, the, that Grinch Hill theme did it after hearing. Hey, do you Love know what I was Fall. thinking as well, and I was going to get in touch with them about it, and you might want to delete this from the podcast, but Rodri who's in Dream Themes and also in Scritti Politti, does he play both of those songs? And does he ever get them mixed up? I don't. We don't need to delete that. He might not listen to this podcast, but I can certainly get in touch with him and ask. <laughs> I'm sure he would have been asked that question before, but I would like to know. Okay. Um, yeah, and the, the, the version that's on streaming services uh, doesn't sound like the right the right mix to me. Um, but you should check it out. It's got possibly the the best guitar sound in, in history. It's heavier. I, I guarantee. I'll put we a don't have guarantee. enough distortion pedals in this studio for us to accurately represent you, the, the heaviness of that guitar part. It's out there though. The, re, the real version's out there if you know where to look. It's just, it's the heaviest guitar sound I've, <laughs> I've ever heard. <laughs> It ceases to be. It ceases to have any meaning as a guitar. It's great. It's great. Um, yeah. So ch- uh, check that out. Um, so um, the last song, which probably did have an influence on "Not When You're in Love," although I wasn't aware of it, aware of it at the time. But now, I, now someone mentioned this to me. It's like, oh, it sounds. It sounds a bit like that. I realised that. Yeah. Definitely, sort of. That's definitely been in my mind when coming up with this with this piano riff, and it's um, "Black Gold of the Sun" by the Rotary Connection. And I didn't, I didn't know that song at all. Where have you heard that song? It's not of your era. Um, I think it was on like a mini Ripperton best of I see. CD. I see. That was that was in our in our house. Um, and I also think it might have been one of the one of the songs I kind of got played 
at some of the more kind of open-minded nightclubs in Newcastle. I see. You know, the kind of ones that were kind of more based around sort of funk and soul. I don't think I've ever been to a nightclub in Newcastle, so... Oh, they're very good. Yeah. Oh, well, they, they used to be 20 years ago. <laughs> I have no idea now. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think the piano on Not when, you, when You're In Love was kind of... There's a little bit of um, Black Gold of the Sun in there. Although, also, and I've just showed you, before we, uh, before we came on air, um, the first piano thing I ever learned was what I called, or um, my Uncle John taught me it, I think, called chopsticks. But I don't think, I think that might be wrong, but that's what we call it, you know, it was the... Now, in my mind, that's how that's where my hands go when I play. That's still the only thing I can play on the keyboard. I mean, that, I that's I where my hands go when I play the piano. And now I think about it, it's like, oh, yeah, it's the same as... <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's first principles really 